The city of Corinth didn't have a large landed aristocracy. It had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC as a Roman colony. So in that respect, it was a young city uh, with new money, not old money. Uh, It was a place that you could come and make a name for yourself. You know, the Corinth, by the time Paul arrives there, it was a place that you really could go from rags to riches, from, you know, a poor, lower station of life in the Greco-Roman hierarchy up to, you know, a higher echelon. What's kind of interesting is if we could, you know, jump on an airplane today and fly to Greece, the, the ruins of the city of Corinth are there, and you can look, them up, look it up and see pictures of it. But if we were there today walking through ancient Corinth, uh, we'd eventually walk past the ruins of what's called the Babius Monument. And here's what the monument originally looked like. So it had eight Greco-Roman columns, Corinthian columns, arranged in a circle. It's supported by a roof that was kind of cone-like in shape, built on a, a tall concrete platform and covered with small, shiny, uh, uh, smooth, shiny marble. And on the monument, there was an inscription, and you can find this inscription in the ruins. It reads as such, Babius Philinus undertook the construction of this monument at his own expense. We think that Babius was a free man, a former slave, who went to Corinth and made it big. And so he paid for the monument. Think about it today. In our culture, who puts their names on big buildings or who puts their names on, on stadiums in our culture? We got Chase Field. We've got a State Farm Stadium. It's corporations, right? They are the ones that you know, spend big bucks in order to gain the social cachet to have their name on you know, public, I guess you could say public monuments of our day. But in their time, you know, before there was big business, before there were corporations, the rich would try to amplify their status by building you know, monuments or, or other buildings and then have their names attached to them as a sign, as a sign of their patronage. Now, their society was even pro- probably more highly stratified economically than ours. The upper 5% controlled the vast majority of wealth, and, uh, you know, they had all the economic power. So if you wanted to, like, move to Corinth and, and wanted to make a name for yourself, make it big in Corinth, what you'd hope to do is find a patron like Babius Philinus, because a patron... You know, a patron was basically a rich, high-status, well-connected individual in that top group. A patron is somebody who would loan you money, who would broker business deals, who would serve as matchmakers. Uh, A patron would be like a godfather-like figure, a godmother-like figure. You find a patron to sponsor you, and that would end up being your ticket to ride. Well, in return, there's a quid quid pro quo, of course. The client of the patron that's what you would be called, was expected to, you know, honor their patron in, in every way and to sort of make the patron's name great. Because, you know, in an honor-shame culture, the, the honor is really the key to everything else. I mean, if you want to gain wealth and power and pleasure, all of that, all of that is accessed through the doorway we call honor. And likewise, uh, all of that is closed off to you if you're carrying, you know, around your neck the cone of shame. So, uh, Yeah, there's one more thing I want to say and highlight before reading the passage, and it's simply this. The role of rhetoric in public speaking in their their day, they kind of consumed rhetoric the way that you and I consume Netflix. 
I mean, in their culture, if you wanted to have a nice evening out, you know, recreationally, you might go and listen to two speakers debate in public, you know, argue out things, give well-refined speeches. The, the, the rhetoricians, the, the great public speakers or orators were just experts at capturing the attention of an audience. They were great at self-promotion. They were showmen with like a flair for the dramatic. And so that's where, um, that's really kind of a major place of their entertainment. Similarly, schools of philosophy in that day would coalesce around an exceptional teacher, you know, renowned for their uh, rhetoric skills. And, you know, uh, if they spoke well, then it seemed like they had wisdom, capital W, wisdom. And the measure of a teacher's greatness was often gauged by the size of their devoted followers and students. And then some of these great teachers who ran their philosophy schools would themselves have a patron who was basically bankrolling the whole exercise. So then they and their students, well, it would be their responsibility to express their gratitude, our great gratitude for for our patrons, um, you know, esteemed gifts and, you know, basically promote the patron's name in public forums. All right. That's a lot of background, but I think you'll see why I gave it to you when we read. It is into this status-conscious world of celebrity speakers and power players and, and patrons and all of that that Paul writes this next section in his letter to, to the church in Corinth. And he's seeking to basically correct the problems that that culture had, had bled into and had created in this new church. And I think you'll find that there are you know, like a number of good parallels for us 2,000 years later. So, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10. <clears throat> now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So, this is the principal appeal that he's making in this section. He says, I urge you to be united. You've got to be united. Now, is he urging here uniformity? Probably not, because given later in the letter, he ends up saying, it's okay if we have differences of opinion about food and how food is butchered and things like that. So he's not demanding that we, I don't know, that we all choose chocolate over vanilla. But he is saying that, like, we should have, we should be united in the same mindset. We should be united. We should have the same, like, values, we should share the same mind about the things that matter most, the things that are most important to God. And that's how he begins his appeal. Verse 11. Uh, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is uh, rivalries among you. Chloe, we talked about her last week. She might have actually been a patron of the church in Ephesus. A church may have met in her house there. At the very least, she was probably a successful businesswoman who sent servants to the city of Corinth, and they were doing business on her behalf, and they came back to Ephesus where Paul was staying, and they end up reporting back to Paul, like this problem that we've got going on in the church uh, about, uh, you know, uh, the rivalries that exist. Verse 12, what I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or... I belong to Cephas, which Cephas was a name for Peter, or I belong to Christ. So what's going on? It seems like they're picking teams. 
You know, I belong to Paul. I follow Paul, say the loyalists who remember that Paul was the one who started the church. He planted the flag for Jesus in Corinth. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. You know, maybe the, the newbies who were impressed by the guest lecture series that Apollos gave when he was in town. Others, the old school, say, well, I follow Peter, Cephas, um, who liked following one of the original disciples. Maybe, maybe something like that was going on. But it's almost as if they're, they're like rabid sports fans who take harmless preferences about uh, who's the better speaker, who has the greater charisma, uh, and they make those into like status markers, identity markers, and then they're ready to like knife each other out in the parking lot afterwards. Uh, what's happening is that the, the attitudes about social advancement through the right patron-client, right teacher-student relationship like have all come bubbling into the church from the outside. They're bringing it in. And Paul says, like, brothers and sisters, we can't let this happen. Did you notice there was a fourth team in here? Which was it? Oh, the one who says, I belong to Christ. <laughs> now, isn't that what we should all be saying? You know, I belong to, to Jesus. I'm on team Jesus. Well, Paul suggests that there is a way of saying that that is actually deeply prideful. When you're, when you're acting like you're above the fray and above all the petty bickering and, and you're the one who's following Jesus in the right way, well, that's a problem. And it's been a problem since the beginning. Verses 13 through 16, he asks these rhetorical questions. <clears throat> is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into Paul's name? No, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Uh, oh, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. I love how perfectly human the, the letter is. Paul is, basically what's happening is he writes this letter. He suddenly remembers another family that he had also baptized, and to sort of ensure that his memory lapse won't discredit himself with his audience, he says, oh yeah, yeah, I, I remember them, and, and maybe I could have baptized a few more people, and I've forgotten them at the moment. Like, he, he admits all of that, and, you know, it just goes to show the, the curious ways. I mean, we believe that the Holy Spirit was at the same time writing this letter, and so there's a very like, beautiful um, conjunction of like the human and the divine at, at play here. <clears throat> also, I want to say one more thing before verse 17. It's possible that these uh, factions are somehow tied to uh, the, being baptized by one of these guys. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you were on Team Paul because he baptized you, or maybe you were on Team Apollos because he baptized you. It seems like they're yeah, their, their loyalty is t attached to the preacher who actually baptized them. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, that's, that's not the way. Then finally, verse 17, <clears throat> he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see wonders here in your word and make us like, united in Christ and give us you know, true wisdom from above. And that's what we pray for this afternoon on this hot uh, Saturday, Sunday afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, who, who was Apollos? 
His name appears here, and it seems like there's some significance to this guy, Apollos. Well, Apollos was a a great speaker. He was really smart, and he came from a strong Jewish community in the city of Alexandria, where one of the most most famous Jewish philosophers of that day, uh, Philo, he was out of Alexandria and the Alexandrian school. So Apollos Uh, He was a man who knew the Old Testament very, very well. He was able to explain it powerfully. And he was familiar enough with the the way of Jesus that he had heard about John the Baptist and the followers of John the Baptist, but he had never heard, actually, the full Christian message about Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. He didn't know any of that until he met a couple of Paul's uh, uh, colleagues by the name of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and they end up basically teaching him, uh, they give him a fuller understanding of Christ. And so then, after that, Apollos becomes really one of the the prime speakers of early Christianity. Uh, Apollos kind of like, he had the it factor. Paul, by contrast, did not. I mean, he actually admits uh, on more than one occasion that the guy was not a very good preacher. (laughs) You know, he may have been a very impressive letter writer. We think that he was. But when it came to the, the whole uh, public rhetoric, you know, oratory, that whole camp, uh, Paul was probably on the verge, I, I would go so far as to say he was probably on the verge of cringy. You say, why? How? Well, one, he, pro- he would have had, the way he pronounced his Greek, you know, he was coming from the eastern part of the empire. And so the way they, you know, they pronounced it in the east would not be looked upon all that favorably, say, in Greece or in Rome itself, out to, uh, to the West. It had to do, you know, with his accent. It, it had to do with his appearance. You know, one of some of the earliest Christian sources we can, we know about was that uh, Paul was balding. He was short. He had, it says he had knobby knees. I mean, the guy, he probably had a big nose. I mean, he, probably, he, just, he was not an attractive figure in terms of his physical stature. I'll tell you, though, what I think is the, the biggest reason why he was such an off-putting speaker. Anybody have a guess what it might be? It was his eye disease. He writes about it earlier in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 4.15. He said he came to their region uh, due to an illness, and he, he adds, he says, quote, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me when I came to you. Like, why? Why? Well, be only, why would he write that if it weren't for the fact that his eyes were really, really bad and uh, terrible even. And I tell you why that's a, a, a big deal, because if the eyes are the window into the soul, as the ancient world sort of thought about it, then if a guy's got like diseased-looking, droopy uh, eyes that are like um, secreting fluids and stuff, what is that going to say to you as a listener? I mean, the guy... He's got a bad soul, <laughs> you know, and here it is. He's the man who arrives, and he's going to tell us about our own souls, and yet he has these, these ugly eyes. He's a man of a troubled soul, or maybe even yet, uh, you know, their world, they're very superstitious. So you have, have you ever heard of the evil eye? Like if somebody gives you the evil eye? Well, I mean, he had an evil eye, <laughs> and, I, and for that reason, like, if you looked at him when he was speaking, if you listened to him when he was speaking, uh, he, was, he was, you know, quite off-putting. I know I think this is 
what he refers to later in 2 Corinthians as a thorn in his flesh. This was, not only was it an eye ailment, something that was painful to him that he had to wrestle with, but it was the thorn in his flesh that every time he basically spoke, it undermined his appeal to his audiences. He says, thankfully, you Galatians, you received me as though I was an angel from God, an angel from heaven. Like they listened to him and they didn't, you know, reject him because of his appearance. But he says, I know that it was a terribly difficult obstacle for you to overcome. Number one, let's talk really briefly about the, the limits of appearance in Christianity. You probably have seen the same study as I have, that the biggest advantage a person has, like if they're applying for a job, if they're trying to get a, a, a promotion, you know, it, it's, it's not their ethnicity, and it's not their education. It's actually how attractive they are. Attractive people um, the studies show they're perceived to have higher levels of intelligence. They're thought, if, you're, if you look good, you're thought to be more honest and trustworthy. People actually, if you are highly attractive, other people look at you and think that you are just like natively uh, successful. And if you're less attractive, um, you're, you're far less likely you know, to, get, to get the job. It's a well-established human bias. We know that, right? Because we're taught at a very early age that we're not to judge a book by its cover. We've heard that before. And yet, uh, most of us, we do. We do. You know, and increasingly, as churches in America have become what, what I, I think that we have become maybe quite personality conscious, um, personality driven and brand conscious. Like nowadays, I mean, you see what I'm wearing. I'm wearing uh, a polo shirt. I'm not dressed in a robe. I don't have a stole around my neck. We don't do robes for the most part anymore. We, we dress in such a way to like highlight our physique, <laughs> you know, especially in certain places. Like I don't have much of a physique to highlight, but you know, you know, cool, my cool tats, my smooth faded haircut. You can just tell nowadays that there is a lot of effort, even among pastors, in, in, curating, in curating like a, a cool hip, attractive public image, because attraction helps build an audience. And all of that, as you can probably guess, like, makes my skin crawl. <laughs> it just, it totally wigs me out. But I was thinking about it this week. Like, in, in this point, I, I think I'm much more uh, of a hypocrite than I'd like to admit. I was thinking about it this week. If God gave me the choice to come into this world looking like Brad Pitt instead of Brad Cheney, would I reject that? Really? Would I reject that? If I could come in looking, you know, like Brad Pitt, if I, if, would I really pick this face and this body over that face and that body? Or, you know, if I got to swap out my voice and, and changed it for this, like, wonderfully sophisticated British accent, so I look like Brad Pitt and I have a great British accent, would I really refuse? Come on. And some of you, you know in your own um, professions, like how, how incredibly important it is to look the part, you know, to look, to look hot, to look good, to, you know, just all of that. It, it can kind of, it can almost feel like appearance is everything in a world that is so much about self-promotion and curating a public image when we talk about it, about how that works on social media and so forth. Um, you know, we, we, you can get on social media and you can create applause-generating statements that appeal to a crowd's prejudice. 
You can create uh, statements that appeal to, to people's fears or to their pride. You can tell stories about yourself that highlight you as the hero, like that highlight your wit and your intelligence or how sacrificially committed you are to some righteous cause. And, and you can spend a lot of time, I don't know, dunking on other people when they say stupid things. You know, when somebody says a really dumb thing, you can just point out, quote, tweet them and, you know, point out how dumb they are and you can put them down. And the algorithm, the good old capital A algorithm loves all of this. It loves all the kinds of, um, you know, that kind of engagement that will help you amplify your voice. It's all modern rhetoric. It's just ancient rhetoric with a kind of cruel modern twist. Does it help the gospel? Verse 17, look at that statement with me again. He says, Christ didn't send me to get baptized, but to preach the gospel. Here it is, right there. Not with eloquent wisdom. Not, not, with, not with great rhetoric. He says, I'm not the great orator. The, the way that I look and I sound, I, it is a hindrance. And I know that. And I know that I don't have the it factor. And yet he regards that as a good thing because he says, so that (laughs) the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Paul actually regards that as a good thing because he doesn't want people to like come under the spell of him. He wants them to come under, (laughs) yeah, the spell of, to be drawn by the power of the sacrifice of the cross. And so it's, yeah, it's not about the pastor. Um, It's not about the pastor. It's, about the cross. At least that's in his calculus. That's how he sees it. Number two, uh, the problem with celebrity. I wonder if, with, if you would agree that, I've heard this statement made before, see if you agree with it or not, that the church in America is uniquely personality driven. Um, is that true? Yes or no? I don't even, I don't really know the answer to that question because I'm not familiar enough with the global church. I don't know what the church looks like in, in Asia or Africa, um, Latin America, very well enough to say if we are somehow uniquely personality-driven. Um, you know, I suspect if we went to Europe today, the European pastors, that they're not as, maybe not as status-conscious, as uh, appearance-conscious as we are. I don't think it's a, a good thing to whatever extent it, it exists in fact, I think there's actually a real danger of celebrity pastors. And I just wrote down five quick thoughts on this because I thought it was appropriate here. And you don't have to write these down, but I just thought it would be easier to number them. Um, the whole phenomena of, you know what I mean by celebrity pastors? The, the names that everybody recognizes. There's some weakness to that model. Number one, it's bad for the pastor because like when fame goes to your head, you, and then you end up crashing and burning, which happens quite frequently, it seems like. It severely damages the church's witness and credibility. And we've seen that again and again when a celebrity pastor just flames out. Um, sometimes, probably, it, it takes a certain kind of um, narcissistic personality type to like, get yourself to a worldwide celebrity status. And those guys, they end up flaming out, and it really harms the church's credibility. Number two, the other problem I see is celebrity pastors' voices are the ones that get amplified in society, and so it can feel like they're uniquely speaking for the church when they don't. They aren't. 
And then when they say something particularly uh, unwise or stupid, it, it can sound like they're saying that for all the rest of us as though we agree and we don't. Number three, it's interesting. When Martin Luther found out, when he heard that his followers were for the first time back in the 16th century, his followers were being called Lutherans, uh, he was so mad, he said this. He said, what is Luther? How did I, a poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, uh, come to the point where people call the children of God by my evil name? <laughs> he was so appalled by it. Yeah, I, I think that, that any um, naming like that is, is deeply problematic because, I mean, the whole thing, a Christian celebrity, is, it's, it's an oxymoron. There's only one Christian celebrity, and his life ended in abject humiliation on a cross. You know, there's only one name to be celebrated, and it's the name that washed others' feet, that walked among the poor, that did not own a, a home, home of his own, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, a man who said that no servant is greater than his master. But as long as we like, have church models that are based on gathering crowds around a great speaker on a stage— um, then we're going to probably end up prioritizing the wrong things. We'll prior to prioritize style and charisma, you know, over character. And that's a terrible bargain to make. Number four, in the church circles that I run in, the celebrity pastor's name that gets mentioned the most is my favorite pastor is Tim Keller, right? What about Tim Keller? And one of the things I appreciate about Keller is he really did take steps to try to avoid the celebrity status I mean, he didn't write his first book until he was like in his, in his 50s. He tried to be in the background. And um, if you're not familiar with him, he ended up starting a church in New York City uh, during a time when there were not many churches doing well there and ended up doing extremely well. So yeah, in our circles, the, the name that you're most likely to hear on a Sunday in a sermon is Keller's. And, and you know that I'm like, I'm a huge Keller admirer and fan. But one of the problems is when we attach to someone and say, like, I follow Keller, I belong to Keller, or whoever is, who's your guy or gal? Like, I, I follow, I belong to um, C.S. Lewis. Or When we do that, the, there is a tendency to almost make every passage sound, every sermon sound like it's the, the same message again and again, like full of Tim Kellerisms or full of C.S. Lewisisms. Like no matter what the passage says, um, we end up interpreting it through the lens of that's my guy or that's my gal. On one level, I, I, I get that. Like you say, well, don't we want to hear the same message again? Don't we want to hear like the gospel again and again? Don't we want to hear Jesus again and again? Yes. And we always need Christ and the good news. But when I read the New Testament, one of the things that stands out to me is what a diversity of voices uh, that, that exists in the New Testament. Like each book sounds remarkably different from the others. No two are identical. Um, the gospel, yes, the gospel over and over again, but it, the gospel feels very different listening to, to it through the words, the, the, the voice of Jude, or through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or, or even the gospel through the lens of Paul sounds quite different from letter to, to letter even. And so I just think it's so important that we not so glom on to whoever is our person that we fail to let the, the text speak in its own voice. I mean, not to belabor this point, 
But you know, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, notice that Jesus does, does not say, well, you are more wicked than you ever dare, dare believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in me than you ever dared hope. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't Tim Keller him, does he? He also doesn't say, uh, well, what must I do to, you would do to inherit eternal life? Brother, you can't, we all know the gospel is a free gift. You can't inherit eternal life. You can't do anything. You can't earn it. He, do, he doesn't say that either. Like, no, the, the unique voice in that text is what? Is sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and come follow me. We've got to let the text speak. Yes, um, that's a, is it a pet peeve? It's definitely something that I have in my pastoral um, time not always been faithful to, you know. I, I, I totally have, have not been faithful to that. And number five, finally, I think we can become so attached to a certain teacher that any criticism of that teacher and their teaching isn't just a disagreement. It can feel like almost a fundamental rejection of us because we have so enmeshed ourselves with our favorites so that when somebody says a critical word about our favorites, we don't take that as just mere criticism. We take it as like catastrophic attack on, on me personally. Now, Paul will ask in, later in chapter 3, what is, Apollo, what is Paul, what is Apollos? We are just merely servants through whom you believed. We are not anything special. Um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the growth. And I mean, yeah, like, I think Tim Keller is special. I think C.S. Lewis is special. But they're not special. Not special special. It's only God who's special. And has to be given, you know, just that preeminence and allow his voice uniquely to speak in each passage. Finally, number three, I hope that wasn't too, too long of a belaboring of the point, but yeah, I don't get to talk about that topic very often in church. Number three, just the need for unity. Um, since I'm out of time, I'll just finish with a brief word about unity in the church, and I think there'll be other opportunities in this letter to go into you know, unity in greater detail. One of the podcasts that I listen to has a, a scripted beginning, and you, it's basically the host says something, and then you have two divergent voices speak. So the host starts out like this. <clears throat> Are you tired of tribalism? And you hear one voice who says, I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. And then you hear another voice. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you tired of tribalism? And he says, are you exhausted by the culture war? And then the next voice is, is Trump. And he says, if they don't like it here, they can leave. Then the next voice is Hillary Clinton. You can put half of the Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, her famous statement. Are you exhausted by the culture war? And then the last question they ask is, are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? And one voice then speaks, is it possible to be, to, uh, to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not, says that voice. And then the next voice, from, from certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. And that's the introduction to the podcast. You probably recognize it because I've mentioned it before. It's Truth Over Tribe podcast. Um, we are, we're just a deeply fractured um, moment in our culture 
And those fractures, we all know, um, bu- bubbled into the church, especially post-COVID. It feels like post-George Floyd, post-Trump, post-COVID, it's been this coalescing of these different factors that, that all of that fracturing has come into the body of Christ. I, we agree that's happened. Listen to Paul's plea in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? No. You know, he points to Jesus as the grounds of their unity and says, if Christ is not divided, then, you know, neither should we in the church of Corinth in their day, neither should we. You know, it's a lot easier, I, th- I think, it's a lot easier to, te- to deconstruct and tear something down than to constructively, you know, build something up. And, you know, as a pastor, I have, like, definitely institutionalist, um, like, uh, how would I say it? Proclivities, like, by it. I'm, 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 I want to create an actual institution because a church is, is something that is a living, breathing organism. And we're, we're trying to build, we're trying to build some kind of new community here. And you just have to look around the room at each other's faces and say, is, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? No, no. You weren't baptized into the name of the donkey. You weren't baptized into the name of the elephant. One Lord. Our unity is in one Lord Jesus Christ. One faith. Our unity is in the apostles and Nicene creeds. Um, one baptism. We're baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and Father, that is one family, one, one family. There's this great quote by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer where he writes this, that uh, Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is not an ideal we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Do you get that? It's not an ad- ideal that we... Have, we work towards, and we do work towards it, but, but more fundamentally than that, it is an already present reality that we are invited to come and participate in. And it's with that in mind that we in you know, the local church and this new community, we try, to, we try to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we were not baptized into the name of Trump or, or Biden. We were baptized into the name of the triune God, and we were brought into the united life of the Trinity itself. And like what, what political idolatries and nationalist idolatries and any other kind of idolatry, what it will seek to do is to have the person you know, absorbed into the group, absorbed into the hive, so that we are dominated by the group. We are dominated by you know, that one position of the cultural war. But the unity that we are invited to participate in is not one of dominating others or absorbing them to be like us. I mean, our whole ask, what we aspire to be like is Jesus. <laughs> it's being brought into Christ and being transformed into his likeness. And in the likeness of Christ, Paul says to those Corinthians, all the status markers of your Corinthian world, they no longer, they no longer count, they don't matter. The patrons, the power players, the celebrities, the public speakers, 
The personality-driven ministry not only does it not count, but it's all been, and he's going to go into this next section, it's all been exposed as foolishness in light of the cross. And that's what we're going to cover next. Um, So let's pray.